Please turn to Ezra chapter 6. Phil read half of it. We're going to look at the entire chapter. Now, you might have remembered from last week that we sort of ended with a cliffhanger. Uh, we have the sort of a Persian official named Tatnai, and he comes to the leaders of Israel and asks them, basically, if they have a building permit, if they're allowed to rebuild. And so he sort of does his kind of governmental due diligence And Israel basically says, yeah, we do, um, and explains the whole situation to them. And then Tatnai writes a letter to the king at the time, King Darius, and it just sort of ends. And we're kind of wondering, is it going to be sort of a reprisal that we saw in chapter 4? Chapter 4, if you remember, ends with the rebuilding of the temple being stopped as a result of kind of governmental uh, kind of bureaucracy. And and sort of we're wondering, okay, is the same thing going to happen? And we're left with a cliffhanger. Now, I could have been nice, and I could have preached chapter 5 and 6 together, but I left you hanging. And I wanted to leave you all hanging. Because let's be honest, we live constantly with cliffhangers. That's our life. Um, I I don't care how good of a guesser you are. Fortune telling is not our gig. And so we live under the constant pressure, the constant tension of cliffhangers. What will tomorrow, what will next month, what will next year bring? Answer, we don't know. All right, will that difficult marriage ever get easier? Will that child who once confessed the faith now come back to the faith? We all live in these sort of constant cliffhangers. And that's what we have here today. A cliffhanger. God's people standing on a cliff waiting to see what God's going to do. And we find out in Ezra chapter 6. And it's simply this. And this is by way of the big idea. There's going to be three points that we'll kind of divide it up and we'll walk through it quickly. But the big idea is simply this, that God's people are vindicated. We're going to see that in verses 1 through 5. And they're vindicated through a benefactor. We're going to see that through 6 through 15, whose actions usher in celebration and joy. Verses 16 through 22. So let's, let's look at this first idea that God's people are vindicated in light of all that's been going on as God's people are back in the land seeking to rebuild. They're, they're enthused. They're excited, right? These, these two prophets come to them and they're stirred up to continue to rebuild. And then we go to verse 1 and King Darius responds, he responds by, by making a decree to, to make kind of a, a royal search party to find the edict that King Cyrus had made two kings away from King Darius. Now, at this time, you know, uh, in the Persian Empire, there wasn't just a capital. There was actually multiple capitals, and kings would spend time in multiple capitals. And so one of those capitals is in sort of modern-day Iran. It's the city of Ekbentana. And there in that city, in sort of the county library, something's found. 
verse 2 and 3, we find a record being found. And what we have in verses 3 through 5 is a record of that first edict the king Cyrus made many, many decades ago. Right? We read of basically the same edict that's read in verses 3 through 5 in chapter 1. And I'll just kind of summarize it. King Cyrus allows God's people to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the altar and the temple, to rebuild the city, and, and he does so because it's sort of Persians' um, default foreign policy, which is to, to send people back so that they can rebuild and then pay homage to the king. And, and as a sign of good faith and goodwill, the king uh, of Persia at this time, King Cyrus, even sort of bankrolls it partially. And even gives them back sort of their, their, their royal treasures to be put back into the temple. And so we have sort of a carbon copy of King Cyrus's original edict, which all edicts at that time were binding. So, so not only was this being found legitimizes what Israel had been doing in building the temple, it also vindicates them. Now, now, to vindicate a person or, or to vindicate a, a company or a community or an organization, it, it's simply this. It's, it's to clear someone from blame or suspicion. It's to clear them, in one sense, from guilt. Now, now to be fair to Todd and I, I, I don't think he had ill will here. I, I don't think he was intentionally trying to thwart God's people from building the temple and the altar. I think he was just trying to do his job. And yet there was enough suspicions going on that he had to investigate. Enough red flags where he was wondering, okay, what, what is going on? Is this like a, a revolt that's going to happen soon? And so he, he, he had to send an inquiry to the king. And yet in these first few verses, we really do have God's people being vindicated. God's people were, in fact, telling the truth all along. Now, we don't use that word vindicating or I'm trying to vindicate myself often, but we do it all the time. I was thinking this past week that, that my children do this, right? There's, there, there's a fight, there's a squabble, there's a, a miscommunication. And so my kids, after they can't agree on it, they take their squabble to the highest court of the land, the supreme court of their world. They take it to mom and dad, right? They take it to a higher authority, they each make, make their case. They each express their truth. Most of the time, truth is somewhere in the middle. But nevertheless, they seek to vindicate themselves, why they are right and the other sibling is wrong. Right? We, we, we might not express it like that, but, but we do this all the time. Kids do this all the time. We, we, we see it in our own lives, too. When someone says something that isn't exactly the the full truth, and you hear about it, we well up and we want justice. We want to vindicate ourselves. Our reputation is at stake. We do this um, sometimes when we sin. We're caught. We're, we're feeling maybe the consequences of sin, and so we deflect. We defend. Our inner lawyer comes out, and we give all of the reasons why it's not that bad, or I didn't really mean to. We, we try to vindicate ourselves. We blame shift. But look what God's people did in chapter 5 and chapter 6. 
right? It, it sort of, it starts in chapter 5, and then it kind of finishes in the first few verses of chapter 6. Basically, they just told the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help them God. That's what they did. They told the truth in chapter 5, and they let that truth kind of work itself out. They didn't concern themselves with fighting tooth and nail for their own vindication. They, they didn't fight for their reputation. In the end, they knew they couldn't. In order to vindicate themselves, they knew it, they needed something much bigger. They needed a king. And they were vindicated, weren't they? The king pursues uh, this document. The document's fine. They're vindicated. Yes, what they said was right. But sometimes that's not how our life goes, is it? Sometimes we're not vindicated. Sometimes truth doesn't reign supreme. Sometimes slander or gossip or lies made about you or a church or, or organization you love, sometimes that, that truth never gets untied. It, it, the truth is never revealed. That's what we live in, that, that tension. And yet, in the midst of all that, I, I think the lesson for us is really clear. It's simply this, that because we live in a broken world, because this side of heaven, truth might not reign, and, and those, you know, if you've ever experienced slander, Maybe you just have to live in the midst of that slander for the rest of your life. I think that the simple lesson for us is that though we might not find vindication, kind of proximate vindication in this world, we will find it in the, the world to come. And it's going to come from a king. See, Ezra 6, we get a taste of the final vindication that's going to come. But we get a taste of what that vindication will look like and feel like when every crooked lie will be made straight, when every untruth will be brought from darkness to light, when each and every injustice will be swallowed up, when all of God's people will be fully and finally vindicated. That's how the story ends. I, I know some of you might be scared of the book of Revelation. There's times I might be a little scared of the book of Revelation. But the book of Revelation is just simply this. The point of the book of Revelation is that through Jesus Christ, through his life, death, and resurrection, the church is vindicated. And Jesus' name is renowned. So the application for us is really one of comfort for us to take heart that regardless of what maybe people might say that ultimately God is the only one that can ultimately vindicate us and the little way we see it here in our chapter this week is just a taste of the ultimate vindication that will come through God one day how do I know that because God has wrapped up his own vindication, the vindication of his own name wrapped up in the vindication of his bride, the church. That's how I know. 
It's not our righteousness that gets us vindicated. It's God's own righteousness and his own name. In the end, truth will be displayed. I love how Charles Haddon Spurgeon, uh, the Baptist pastor in the 19th century, he gave this illustration. He said this, A great lie is like a big fish out of water. It dashes and plunges and eventually beats itself to death with enough time. Now that time can be short. It can also be quite long. But eventually, all untruths will be made right. God will vindicate his own. That's the first lesson we learn in verses 1 through 5. But, but, but now let's, let's look at this, this second. Not only will God's people be vindicated, but then second, they're going to be vindicated through a benefactor. In verse 6, um, ha- having found this record, King Cyrus gives an edict. Or sorry, having found the, the, the edict of King Cyrus, King Darius now gives a new edict. And, and basically, it's the same edict. It's, uh, it's almost exactly the same edict that King Cyrus gave many years ago with a few different uh, minor changes. So verse 7, the king once again calls for the temple to be rebuilt. Then in verses 8 through 10, the king generously sort of bankrolls this, the rest of the building of the temple, including gifting Israel with animals to be sacrificed. Then in verse 11, the king shows how serious he is. He says, if anyone's going to stop this edict, if, everyone, if anyone were to disobey this edict, the edict of a king, now I'm quoting from verse 11, a beam shall be pulled out of his house and he shall be impaled on it and then his house turned into a dunghill. Now, there's some debate on what this is talking about, but, but we all know what this is talking about. We all know the unpleasant point that the king is saying, the sort of Shakespearean point that if you disobey this edict, right, a, a plague be upon your house. Then in verse 12, King Darius basically signs his name and he says that, that, that everything that was just written must be followed and accomplished swiftly. And then verse 13, Tatnai, like a, a good, loyal subject of the king, informs God's people of the king's edict. And then we learn something amazing in verses 14 and 15. A few years after, a few years after King Darius gives this edict, the house of God, the temple, is finally built. God does it. But notice how God does it. God accomplishes his will to rebuild the temple by, in chapter 5, sending two prophets to stir up God's people. And then in chapter 6, he uses a king to function as a, a benefactor for God's people. A benefactor is someone who gives money or, or help to a person and to a cause. So in this sense, Darius, he gives money, he gives resources, he even gives his sword, right? He says, if you don't do this, 
you know, the, the, the sword of the empire is going to come upon you. Darius is a benefactor to God's people here. But, but let me be clear. Darius is not the good guy here. Actually, historically speaking, Darius is a bad guy, okay? At one point during his reign, uh, some people in, in Babylon kind of had an uprising, a revolt, and he crucified 3,000 citizens. Darius is not a good guy. We're not meant to read this text and think, oh, be like Darius. Darius is the hero. No. But, but we are supposed to realize that God's going to vindicate his people, and he's going to do it through a, uh, through a benefactor. That is the model. That is his method, his divine method of vindicating his people. It will be through a benefactor. But the ultimate benefactor is not Darius. It's someone starkly different than Darius. Darius was sinful. But there would come a time where an ultimate benefactor would come who was sinless. Darius was motivated from selfish gain. You can't read verse 12 and not realize that one of the reasons why he's trying to get the temple built is so that they can sacrifice to their God on behalf of him so that he could get blessing from that other God, from the true God. Darius is very much motivated by selfish concerns, but the ultimate benefactor would come and he would be motivated for the glory of his father. Darius gave a little gold the ultimate benefactor would come and he would give up the riches of heaven. Darius wasn't present with them during the rebuilding. He, he was off in his royal palaces. But the ultimate benefactor would come and he would tabernacle. He would incarnate himself. He would be with his people. He would become one. Darius, like I said earlier, crucified many people. The ultimate benefactor to come he would himself become crucified for the sins of people. Actually, in many ways, there's not a lot of similarities between Darius and this ultimate benefactor, except for one, both were kings. But Darius was just king of a little empire for a few years. The ultimate benefactor would come, and he would be king of the universe for all of eternity. Now, if you're not a Christian or, or you are a Christian, you know the Sunday school answer to this ultimate benefactor. The ultimate benefactor I'm describing is Jesus Christ, the man who helps us. But, but the question is, what is he helping us in? And the answer is the same thing that Darius was helping them in too, the same cause. The cause is how, how can God's people be in God's presence? How can unclean be made to come into the presence of cleanness? How can God dwell with his people? That was, the, that, that was the tension of the temple. That's the tension that Darius sort of resolved partially by building the temple. That was a temporary mechanism for God dwelling with his people. But there would come a time where that tension was fully and finally resolved, where Jesus himself would come. He would incarnate, he, the, the word made flesh would come among us. The, the ultimate cause wasn't uh, 
um, you know, what, what just, what do I do with my sin? The, the ultimate cause was Jesus was going to deal with their sin, not through the blood of goats and, and bulls, but through his own life. The ultimate benefactor, God's son, Jesus Christ, he vindicates God's own name by himself being a sacrifice for sin. That's the divine hope baked inside the Ezra text. God not only used Darius as a benefactor, but one day God would send his son as the ultimate benefactor to help us in the most serious problem that any of us have, the problem of our sin. And Jesus would take up that cause by himself, vindicating God's name by dying on a cross for sinners And when this happens, when God vindicates his people, something happens. Something wonderful happens. Something always happens. It inevitably happens, and we see it in the last section in verses 16 through 22. When you really understand that God vindicates his people through Jesus Christ, two things just kind of flow out of that. Celebration and joy. Look at it with me. Starting in verse 16. The temple, four years after Darius's edict, is finally finished. Verse 16, let me just read it. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. Celebration and joy. Now, now we see this celebration and joy manifested uh, in sacrifices that they made in verses 17 and 18. And then they celebrate this, the dedication of the temple with the Passover, with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We see that in verses 19 through 22. Now, I, I just want to point out a few things. There's gold to be mined in verses 16 through 22. And I'm not going to point out all of them. Now, I I sort of hate it when preachers say that, but I'm just going to point out a few of the wonderful truths that just come out of this text. And and first, I just want want to think through this feast. When they dedicate the temple, they dedicate the temple during the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover. But if you remember, maybe if you're in the men's uh, Bible study, or actually in the women's Bible study, you're going to be helped here. If we contrast the dedication of this temple with the dedication of Solomon's temple, we realize that it's a different feast in 1 Kings chapter 8. In 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon dedicates his temple at the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, what's the Feast of Tabernacles? Well, well basically, it's, it's a feast commemorating God's people wandering in the wilderness. It's, it's, a, it's a feast to celebrate the faithfulness of God while God's people were wandering. It's a reminder that God is with his people. And there's intentionality with why Solomon dedicates the temple on the Feast of Tabernacles. He actually waits 11 months. The temple has been built for 11 months, and then he dedicates the temple on the Feast of Tabernacles. And the reason he's doing this is because he's trying to make a theological point, a really intentional point, and that's this, that they have been on the move for a long time, and now they can rest. 
And in many ways, this is kind of climactically presented symbolically when God and the glory of God comes into the Holy of Holies. The point is, God is dwelling with us and we can rest. He's been faithful to get us here and now we can rest with God. But notice that the second temple, it's not dedicated on the Feast of Tabernacles. It's dedicated on a different feast. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, which accompanies the Passover. And very much just like Solomon, there's a point in this. There's a reason why this is the feast for this dedication of this second temple. The, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover, it, it's about the exodus. God's people being brought out of their, their bondage to the Egyptians. God saving them. Redemption. Remember the, the blood on the door? So, so they'd take the unleavened, all, all the, the yeast, and they'd get rid of that because they were, there was newness of life. They, they, they were to march. They were to go into their redemption that God would bring. We see this in verse 20, right? The religious leaders, they purify themselves. Then in verse 22, the whole community does. They make offerings to God. They eat the Paschal lamb. You, you can't hear the echoes of the exodus in the rededication of this temple. You can't kind of hear and feel and experience the sort of redemption and the hope and the excitement that they experienced when God led them out of Egypt so many years ago. You, you could think of it as almost a second exodus. And so here they come, celebrating the temple by throwing out all of the old leaven and preparing themselves for the bounty of the new grain that God's going to provide. This is not just a new temple. This is a new start, a fresh start. So to kind of put this contrast right next to each other, Solomon, he wants to communicate during the dedication of the temple back in 1 Kings, the, the idea of rest from their wandering. But the point here isn't rest. It's purification. It's redemption. It's a reminder that they should be throwing out their past sin and walking in newness of life with God. This really is the hope of the gospel. That's, that's what the Passover was all about about redemption. And they have it partially here. But it comes fully when Jesus Christ himself would sit at a table. But at that table and on that table, there was no lamb because the lamb was actually sitting at the table. Jesus Christ himself said, I am the lamb of God. This is my body. Take and eat. Jesus Christ himself lived and died. He was the fulfillment of the Passover because he brought God's people not from the bondage of the Egyptians or any other nation. He brought us from under the bondage of sin and takes us into freedom and newness of life. But, but then notice, I, wanna, I just want to point out something else to you. 
So, so we have this feast, this Passover feast, this wonderful feast to remind people that, that they, they're to uh, kind of rededicate their lives to God. But the question is, who's allowed at this feast? Who, who's allowed to partake of the Passover? Now, I don't know how you read your Old and New Testaments. Maybe you read your Old Testament and New Testament like this, that the New Testament is kind of the, the spiritual people of God. The Old Testament is the ethnic people of God. Well, that's not exactly true. It's partially true. Not exactly true. Just, just look at verse 21. In, in verse 21, you know, we have the first group who celebrates the Passover. Let me just read it. It, it was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile. Now, that makes sense, okay? But that, that makes sense that they participated in, in this feast. But, but one of my questions is, who else? Because there's a second group here. If we keep reading. Also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land and to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. There's a second group here. And the question is, who's in this second group? Were Jews that, that, that were not brought um, into the exile, were they allowed to participate in the Passover? Yeah, yeah. As, as long as they, they worshipped the true God and didn't sacrifice to other gods. Yeah, yeah, they could participate. Well, what about all the Jews in, in the surrounding areas? Could they participate? And the answer is, yeah, they, they, they too could participate in as long as they separated themselves from the uncleanness of other religions and gods. But what about non-Jews? What about Gentiles? Were they allowed? Well, if you go back to the first Passover, Exodus 12, the original Passover, you're going to find that there is an allowance for foreigners, for strangers, even at that first Passover. And then the first Passover that was, that was experienced in their wandering years in Numbers chapter 12, once again, those same allowances are reiterated. Foreigners, strangers, outsiders, this is how you too can participate in the Passover. Even in the Old Testament, God's people were not strictly ethnic. Just think of Rahab. Think of Ruth. There was, like, don't get me wrong, an ethnic core. But God's people were not comprehensively bound by race. They were comprehensively bound by grace. Always. Grace was at the center of God's people and their worship. And, and when we get to Ezra chapter 9 and 10, and if you know those chapters, you, you might be having questions because there we've got Ezra coming onto the scene and, and explaining how they need to separate even in, in their marriages to other religions. That also is not about ethnicity. It's about morality. That too is about spirituality. Now God's people aren't primarily bound by race. Primarily bound by grace from start to finish. I also just want to point out this whole idea of how they responded. How they responded when the temple was built. Yes, they, they celebrated with joy. 
But even the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it brought up the idea of repentance. The idea of getting rid of the, the, the leaven, the, the, their sin, and walking in newness of life. Repentance is, is sort of um, rededicating our lives time and time again, turning back to God, running back to God, and saying, God, I, I don't want to trust myself. I don't want to trust in my sin. I want to trust in you. You know what's best. And I will over and over again, whenever I'm running from you, I will over and over again run back to you. That's repentance. And we see this in the rededication of this temple. The rebuilding of this temple. That the right response to the Passover, to God's redemption, to bring us out of bondage is repentance. And then I just want to point out one last thing. We see it in the last verse. Let me just read verse 22. And they kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the hearts of the king of Assyria, the heart of the king of Assyria to them, so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. And they celebrate. And we learn in verse 3 that, that their joy is contingent and kind of flows out of God himself, right? We learn that, that in the, you know, you can break down verse 22 in kind of three parts, but right? We learn that God is the source of their joy. Second, we learn that God is the source of their success. And thirdly, we, we learn that God is the source of their strength so that they could complete the rebuilding of the temple. I mean, you could meditate that on that all week, that God is the, the source of our joy, he's the source of our success, and he's the source of our strength. It's an easy sermon to preach. It's a a sermon we should all preach into our hearts and minds. But but notice the word is joy. It's not happiness. There's lots of things that, that make us happy, that are good things, great things. But happiness is fleeting, isn't it? Like I, 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 I thought to like list various things that make us happy, but we all know what those things are. They're probably a bit subjective too. But happiness is fleeting. But joy, joy can be experienced even during tragedy because joy finds its source in God and what God has done. And the ultimate thing that God has done, we see a hint of it in verse 22. Did you notice something really odd in verse 22? The king is called the king of Assyria, which instantly should go, ah, uh, what? Right? It's anachronistic. It's, it's historically wrong, right? You have the king of Assyria who, who kind of is overtaken by the king of Babylon, who's then overtaken by the king of Persia. I don't think this is a typo, guys. This is not a scribal error. This is just pure goodness. The Holy Spirit intended and inspired the author to put the king of Assyria, I think, extremely, this is an extreme point here. I think he wants to remind God's people of what happened 200 years ago 
when the king of Assyria did come. When the king of Assyria did come and conquer the northern tribe, ten of the tribes of Israel, to remind them what happened ten years ago that as a result of their sin, as a result of their idolatry, as a result of their spiritual adultery, that God fulfilled his promise and the curses of Deuteronomy 28 and 29 fell on God's people. And they can't, but we can't, but kind of hear and experience and feel what that was like. That those curses fell. And I think the author is trying to say that after 200 years of God's people experiencing those curses, the curses are done. They're done. And they're ultimately going to be done, not here, but when Jesus Christ comes. Because one thing that if you contrast 1 Kings and Ezra 6, that you'll realize is that when the dedication of the temple happens in 1 Kings, the glory of God fills the temple. Actually, it's interesting. The priests sort of run out of the temple. It's that like intense. Do you guys notice the glory of God filling the temple here? No, it doesn't. God's glory never comes back until we get to John 1, what Mark read earlier, when Jesus Christ comes himself. When he comes, that's when the glory finally comes back to the temple. John 1, let me just read it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Finally, the glory of God comes back in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I think that's why the king of Assyria is mentioned. It's to stir in them a longing. When, when will the glory return? And the answer was, soon. Now for us, on this side of the cross, the question isn't when will the glory, the glory came, but, but there is a question which is, when will the glory of Jesus Christ return? I think the answer is the same. Soon. Jesus will soon return. And the curses of Deuteronomy 28 and 29, they were swallowed up in Jesus Christ. And you finish the book in Revelation 21 and you realize that there is just goodness and glory and wonders anew in the world to come. Now, we all have our cliffhangers, don't we? Those times where we don't know what's going to happen. We could list them they're just always in front of us. But one cliffhanger we don't have is this. Jesus Christ has already vindicated his church. He has he lived and died and was resurrected. He was vindicated in his resurrection. And in his vindication comes our vindication. That's a cliffhanger that you don't need to experience, that you don't need to wonder. Let's pray.
God, we, um, we thank you that in the midst of all of our tensions, questions about what's going to happen in the future, questions about our sadness, when we, we can physically, mentally rest. Lord, we, we are grateful for your son and all that he's done for us. Lord, we, we pray, Lord, that we would have confidence in your gospel. We pray that we would have comfort in your gospel. We, we pray, Lord, that in the, the small ways that we experience being vindicated here, that those would just usher in a reminder of the ultimate vindication that we will one day have by you. Lord, I thank you for these men and women. Pray, Lord, that we would understand in a deeper way all that you've done for us and all that that does to, 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 to encourage us to walk in that newness of life that you've already purchased for us. And we pray all this in your son's name. Amen.